Loving this, that's very good. Is there someone called Zach Nunes in this room here today as well? There is. Zach, could you stand up for us? Because we just want to welcome you back to from the United States of America, Idaho. You've been jumping, literally jumping on the team there, the athletics team for three years? Four years now. And so you are back for how long now, Zach? Mum says forever. Um, <laughs> she will not let you go. But we just want to welcome you back too, mate. So a big you know, round of applause for Zach. Lovely to see you back. Yay. So glad to have you here. And whilst we're rolling in that theme there, um, I was uh, one of the cooks. So Paul and Wendy were doing so well last week at the State Youth Games, doing all of the cooking. So I came on the Monday and I got up at this obscene time in the morning and drove down there to get there by seven just after. And uh, I was cooking eggs and flipping some bacon. And uh, I thought, yeah, I haven't seen so many of these young people for so long. Like it's been two years of interruption, right? And so um, Lachlan walks in. Lachlan wouldn't be here today. Well, he's, Lachlan walks in, and Lachlan, I go, I know Josh, right? So go early, go hard. So and as soon as you walked into the tent, I said, Josh, g'day, mate. Good to see you. And he goes, Lachlan. <laughs> I said, oh, oh, so sorry, Lachlan. Lachlan, 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 Lachlan. And when I saw him last, he was like this, and now he's like this, right? And so uh, then I thought, okay, I've got it for the next one. So his brother's here. So like 10 minutes later, his brother walks in. Josh, 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 Josh. G'day, Josh, how are you? He goes, Hamish. <laughs> I said, oh, Hamish, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know we're going to. I brought some chocolate for them today if they came. But they're not here. So I, Lucy, I think it's yours, okay? So we're going to do that. Oh, uh, one other thing that I should just draw your attention to, that it's just an exciting thing for us, is that for those who know Arnie, Arnie Arienda, he, he left us to go and be with his God, uh, Jesus, um, a year and a half ago. And um, uh, Natalie wife sent us an email this week and just saying, look, the estate has sort of been sort of finalized. And when Arnie and I were talking about some of the giving generosity we wanted to be involved in, when all of that was finalized, um, he said, we very much want to give some finance to new community. And so here it is. You can do what you want with it. So we just saw it so touched by that. On, on Monday or Tuesday, we had the, Tuesday, the discussion maybe Wednesday, Yvonne came up with a great idea. She said, tell you what, Arnie was always so much into his soccer and into his sports. He wanted to connect people. Um, that um, We said, why don't we use the funds to set up like our own Arnie Arienda State Youth Games um, scholarship so that any other young people in the years to come who aren't able to make it, they can make sure they do have that experience, build community, hear about God, and that would be a great thing. So, Nat, are you here with us today? You are. Could you just give us a wave? Bron, could you just scoot down to Nat for a moment there? Because I know, Nat, we just wanted to um, honour you, and I know as you've wanted to honour Arnie. Um, tell us what has been the most exciting thing for you. As you, I know when I shared that with you, you're like, oh, that's, that's so, so really good. But what was it about Arnie that, and sport that was so meaningful for him? Yeah, so um, Arnie came to Australia uh, uh, as a young adult and for him sports was what connected him to other people um, and he also connected with other Christians who were playing sports and he came to know God as well through that as well. Um, but I think for him he found that sports was a way of getting to know people, building trust and then being able to be vulnerable with people. So really kind of I suppose building deep relationships in a space that felt 
really safe, but also fun. Um, so, yeah, I have to admit he was like a bit of a different man on the sports field. Wasn't always smiling. <laughs> he got into a zone and it could get scary, but it was all in the spirit of fun, I think. Um, so Here's he would be directing. very touched. I know that you said yeah. he loved calling out things from the sideline. Yeah, he loved yelling across the, the field. <laughs> but, yeah, he would be very, very um, happy to know that others could enjoy state youth games despite, you know, any financial barriers or, or anything like that. So yeah. thank you so much um, for thinking of him in, in that way. You're welcome. Would you put your hands together for Natalie too? It's very good. Um, Bron and I are about to go on some leave and we're starting a new series today. You can see it here. Um, rebuilding more than bricks and mortar. And what I'd love you to do is just imagine with me the years 5, well, we're going to go that way, 587 BC, and you are someone who is living in Israel, in Jerusalem, and the unthinkable, the unimaginable has happened. The power from the north, Babylon, has come down and has destroyed the city, um, torn down the walls, uh, gone to the temple, that sacred space where heaven and earth meet, where, where God dwells, and uh, they've, they've ransacked the temple, burnt it down, destroyed it completely and utterly. And in that space there, um, the whole hopes of a nation are literally just torn apart. You can imagine that just the absolute destruction and the devastation that they witnessed. And the question on their mind that's been rolling around in their heads is, why on earth would God allow this to happen to us? More so, God, where are you in the midst of this utter devastation? And if you asked some of their prophets, some of the spokespersons of God, they would say, well, we have been coming to you and for year after year after year, we have been saying to you that you are sick as a nation. You are not well. Instead of reflecting light, God's light, you have been reflecting darkness. And so God has been warning you to, to change your behavior. In fact, one of the prophets by the name of Isaiah, he said this about his diagnosis of the community. He said, the ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Wash yourselves, he says, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then he goes on and says, learn to do good. Seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Such was the diagnosis, if you like, of the people. And it wasn't just for a short amount of time. It was over and over and over, year after year. If you like, the diagnosis was that you have chased after all of the other gods and become just like them. And so what happened in that fateful time, that, that very moment, is that there was a mass deportation. People were gathered up and moved from... Israel, all the way up, 1,000 kilometers up to modern-day Iraq in Babylon. And there, if you like, their hopes and their dreams had been utterly, utterly shattered. And in that space, if you had have asked one of the uh, Israeli people, one of the uh, Jewish people about being a, a person of God, part of his partnership and covenant, they may have um, said on, on their lips, how will God fulfill the promise he made to Abraham, our forebear? that one day through him there would be a great nation and, and that that nation of people would be a blessing to the world and they would shine God's light and his justice and his goodness and his mercy and his righteousness into the world and in fact the world would come to, to him, his dwelling, his place and, and he would put the world to right 
through us with him ruling. How on earth will God keep and fulfill that promise? Will he do that? And the message of another one of his spokespersons by the name of Jeremiah in that place when they're pining for home, when their dreams are shattered, when their lives are in such turmoil, the words to the people come in kindness and compassion like a shepherd. Jeremiah writes, These are the words of God for you. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. I wonder if you're here this morning and as you're hearing the various comments that people have made, as you, you assess the world and the state in which it's in, if you need to hear these words for yourself. That God has not forgotten you. That God has not forgotten this earth. That, that his inclination and gesture towards you is one of hope and of a future. And then Jeremiah goes on and he says, one day after 50 to 70 years, after the next generation, I, I, I tell you this, you will return. And you will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all of your heart. You will be found by me and I'll be found by you. And that is the promise that he gives to them. And so today what we do is we pick up the words, if you like, of Ezra and Nehemiah as they retell this story of rebuilding not only walls, but very much their lives as well. Very much what we are going through as a community, what our, our nation is going through, what the world is going through right now, rebuilding. And God's message, I believe, is that it takes more than just bricks and mortar to rebuild. In fact, God's in the business of re rebuilding human lives in bringing hope, giving a future, and healing. And that's the story that Ezra and Nehemiah want to tell. So come on a journey with me. 587, 50 odd years onwards, and there's been a political shift in the landscape. Babylon is on the, um, uh, no longer ascending, they're descending, and the Persian Empire is, is climbing, and Cyrus, the king of Persia, has now become the ruler of the known world. And Ezra writes these words, chapter 1, verse 1. He says, In the first year of Cyrus, or Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And it goes on and says this, The Lord, the God of heaven, says the king, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed to me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. You see, the Babylonian king, uh, the way in which the the landscape of gods and goddesses worked in that age was that if your god was in the ascendancy, you would collect all of the trinkets like the box set of all the other temples and, and all of the uh, other sacred items from other places and bring them to your own temple and place them all there as though your god's the biggest. And, and, and Cyrus says, he says, I want you to know that I want to build a house for the God of Jerusalem. Little did he know that it was actually the God, the creator of the entire heavens and the earth. And he said, what I want you to do is go back um, and actually rebuild and have a place where your God can dwell. And it goes on and says that when they heard these words from Cyrus and the words ringing of Jeremiah in their ears, this was the response of the people. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved or stirred up, prepared to go and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, a place where heaven and earth might meet, 
where the one true living God might find a place on earth. He isn't contained by buildings and bricks and mortar, but it was a place where they know they could look to, that he would not just be for them, but that he would dwell among them. You know, one of the most profound ways that God speaks to people is by stirring their heart. You might find yourself in a situation, maybe at work or at school, in which you just get a stirring. You don't quite understand it, but it persists with you. There's a stirring that God sort of wrestles up and says, there's a new activity, there's a new season, there's a new thing coming your way, and it just stirs things up. So too the people. And so they gathered all their things, and in a self-styled second exodus kind of um, parody, or not a parody, but rather um, being equated with, just like the Egyptians left and they were given all of the treasures of people, gold and silver and livestock to bless them on their way, so too uh, the, the Persians and, and the people who were there in that place gave gold and silver, and it was that they set out on this arduous journey, 1,000 kilometers or beyond. They didn't have any trains, no public transport, there was no GPS systems, they just head out on the trade routes with all of their livestock and their young children. Young people who had never seen the ancient world, that city, that, that great place of Jerusalem, nor the temple themselves set off. You can imagine all of the hopes and the dreams that they carried. God was with them. and He was fulfilling his promises. And so at the end of that long, arduous journey, they arrive in Jerusalem. And they have made their way there. And when they arrived, it says this. They arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and some of the heads of the families gave a free will offering towards the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. I love this. They get there and they stare at this building that's absolutely in ruins. And the first inclination they have is to be moved to start a building fund. <laughs> and so they start to collect and they give freely and there's this great sense of optimism that God is at work and good things are coming our way. And so they send issue to um, the, the great places of Lebanon and their cedars and they start to purchase product. Uh, they pull together the stonemasons and uh, the artisans and they start to amass all of the resources they need in order to begin. And then they gather. Chapter 3 says, They started to gather together. And as they gathered together, they built the foundation of the temple. And when they built the foundation of the temple, they all as one people gathered around in that space to thank God. And there were the priests there with all of the robes on and all their vestments. And there were the trumpeters there with all of the musical instruments. There were the sons of Asaph there that would sing their songs. And it says, as they gathered in that place together... There was one song that the, the singers started to sing, and it went like this in a responsive way. God is good. His love toward Israel endures forever. God is good, and his love endures forever. God is good, and his love endures forever. God is good, and his love endures forever. And as the singers sing and as the trumpets sound and as the, the, the people stand together as one, the response of the people is this. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord God because the foundation of the house of the Lord had finally been laid and they sensed that God was with them. 
But there was also another response from the crowd that was perhaps unanticipated. And the response from the older people was this. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, it says they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while so many others shouted for joy. And it says that they wept in that place because in that moment they remembered the great temple of Solomon and how far they had come and how far, if you like, that this whole building had been reduced to a rubble. And so in their mind's eye, they cast themselves back and in this mixture of grief and perhaps repentance and sorrow, there was this collective anthem and praise together. A shout of praise that included both sorrow and a sense of joy at what God was doing. You know, when I think about these words, I'm reminded human beings are made to worship. There's something instinctive within humans that worship. You know this. Have you ever gone to one of those great vistas? You've climbed a mountain only to get at the very top of it, and there's a panorama before you. Have you observed people who have climbed those mountains and looked out of those great vistas? And there's a natural response that comes just from within. Sometimes there's just quiet and silence in awe of this bigness of what's before them. Sometimes you'll hear people go, wow. And it'll just come out from within. Other times you might notice that people just involuntary, they just raise their hands. As though they're sort of responding to something that is great and bigger before them. Human beings are made to worship. Sometimes people have told in their darkest moments, even if they have been disinterested in God all of their lives... In those dark moments of their lives, they will describe a sense of this reflex of calling out to someone for help. Sometimes people in their greatest highs, their moments of joy, of success of something, they'll come from within this desire to want to thank someone and they wonder who. All of those things, if you like, are just reflexive responses to this idea that human beings are made to worship. But secondly, also, this is equally true as well. We become what we worship. If your life is centered around worshiping the dollar and the accumulation of money, sooner or later, you will begin to rank other people according to their financial worth and status. That's how it works. If you worship social status and position, sooner or later you will begin to rank people according to your own sense of where they fit on the social strata. Because that's what will happen. And when you worship things that are lesser, that are finite, if you like things made of stone and wood, your world will narrow. But what I find is this, is that when I worship the one true living God, that who is truly worth worshipping, that is infinite, that is unlike myself, that is bigger than who I am and who you are collectively, I find that my world opens up. I've experienced this in a great crowd of people, in a conference where people have 
set their hearts upon worshipping God together. I don't know who the person is behind me. I don't know who the person is on the other side. But after that sense of focusing upon someone who is bigger and greater than ourselves, there's a sense in which you are drawn together. You could hug the person next to you and you don't know why. You could say hello. Don't do that. You could be, have a smile. And you just feel this sense of kindredness and connection. Probably the only time that I think that we collectively as a nation recently have been able to feel that little sense of that is when Kathy Freeman won the 400 metres at the Sydney Olympics. For 50 seconds, Australia came together. There was a sense of unity and oneness, wasn't there? When collectively we were all focusing upon a young indigenous woman who was running out of her skin and winning a gold medal and the hopes of a nation were collected, if you like, in that one space. That's what happens when human beings turn their heart to the living God, is that when you worship that which is bigger than you, the one true who is infinite, if you like, he pours himself into you and you are reshaped. You gain a new perspective. And it's not just having to fake it, like put on a happy face. The kind of worship that says, God, you are bigger than me and I honor you, is not always directly in tune with your circumstances. That's what was going on here. Sometimes people in their deepest need call out to God. And it's not that they're closing their eyes and they're saying, I want to do something that's blind and I'm just stepping out into the unknown. It's this reflexive action which says, my circumstances are far greater than who I am, and I cannot do anything about, but then intuitively, God, would you act? And I just want to worship you because you are the only thing I can hold on to in the midst of my uncertainty. I wonder this morning, in the midst of all that's taken place over the last two years, If God might want to speak to you and he wants to put a new song in your heart, he wants to put new words in your mind that will bubble up from the inside out to invite you to redirect your worship once again to that which is truly worthy and worth. And that's not something that you have to do because you are just trying to white knuckle through the difficult circumstances of your life. But it's something that actually comes and bubbles up from within because he's putting a new song, a new heart, a new, a new joy with inside of you. I wonder if God might be doing that and speaking to you about those things today. Well, the story goes on. And in the first moment, after this incredible sense of God being with us, the very next thing that happens is a fight, (laughs) is a conflict. Get ready when someone actually decides to say, I want to draw a line in the sand, I want to worship God from my heart, from the inside out, that sometimes there's opposition that comes. And this is the kind of opposition that's really curious because we don't quite know what's going on. For some of the people who were living in that area had been moved from another country to theirs, been a former political, if you, um, uh, from a, a former ruler uh, under the Assyrians, had moved people into their area, and, and the, the people of God, the people who were of the, the nation of Israel, were afraid of them. 
But those very people came to Zerubbabel, the leader who was leading this, this group of people, and they said these words. Let us help you build because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Well, the very next response that Zerubbabel has is to say, you have no part in this because this is something exclusively that we are doing, which is counterintuitive because surely God wants all the nations to come towards him and find life in him. But we sense here in these words that the leaders understood that there was something not quite right about this offer. The idea that we worship your God, but we also have our other gods that we're equally worshipping as well. A sense perhaps of dilution or a sense of perhaps exclusivity that wasn't quite warranted. We're not quite sure. But the result of this moment, what happens when they are snubbed like this or their offer is refused because they're wondering if it's genuine is that the tools are set down, the temple has stopped being rebuilt, and there is discord, and there is bitterness, and there is accusations of treason all the way back to the emperor or the king in Persia himself. And so after a day, and maybe a week, and maybe a month of tools down, people get on with their lives, and they forget about building a house for God. Until one of the prophets by the name of Haggai comes and says these words to them. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I might take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You see, they'd got about to building their own houses and planting their own crops and if you like, neglecting God's presence amongst them. And so Haggai the prophet comes to them and says, how has it been for you since you've been planting your crops? How have they been producing? Have they been abundant? When you've gone and tried to panel your own houses, has it kind of amounted to not much? You want to know why that's the case? He says, because God's been trying to get your attention. Because he wants you to first put your priorities in order and honor him. You see, God doesn't need people's honor as though he can't exist without it. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God wanted to call them deeper into relationship with him of trust. See, that's what I loved about what Natalie said this week in that gesture towards us, is that Natalie wasn't doing those things because she wanted to in some way leverage something back from God. She was doing those things because she wanted to honor her husband. She wanted to honor his wishes. But she also wanted to honor God. You see, we live in a world that does not honor. Yesterday, my brother and I, we took a journey down to Point Lonsdale to visit some dear friends of ours who are much older. He has a terminal illness and he's working really hard, and we don't know when he might die. But as we sat there with him, as a surrogate uncle of ours, my brother and I, we just sat with him because we sensed we wanted to say words. Now, I said, Uncle Davey, you know we want you here for a long time. 
but we don't know when. So we want to say words. And so we said, thank you. Thank you for all those years. Thank you. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you for sharing life with us. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you. And in those moments driving away, we just were grateful. We didn't want anything. We didn't seek anything. We just sought to honour a man who had been so honouring of us. You see, God doesn't need our honour as though he's not able or else he can't function without it. He's much bigger than that. God loves us, but don't kid ourselves. He doesn't need us. (laughs) But he so thoroughly enjoys people who are prepared to go deeper, who don't want to leverage him for their own benefits as though they could try and control him or use him, but that actually want to honour him because of who he is. I tell you this this morning, if you want to honour God in your life, there'll be moral compasses in your life that you will draw boundaries and lines in and you'll determine and say, I will not step over that boundary because I want to honour my own values, but more so, I want to honour my God. And I tell you what, as soon as you draw a line in the sand and put up a boundary like that, someone will test it. And that will come, and there will come a rub. Because for honour to be truly honourable, it costs you something. It costs. Oh, it cost my brother and I a couple of hours a trip down and some petrol. What's that? That wasn't costly. But what might God be asking you today to honour him in? Because I believe that we're going to rebuild. And if we want it to be more than bricks and mortar, it must begin with heartfelt worship of the one true living God that reflexively wants to worship and honor him just for who he is. God builds the inside whilst he enables us and helps us to build the outside. Thanks, mate. They finished the temple after 20 years. 20 years. They all gather together, raise their arms, and they sing an anthem of praise to God. And then unlike the temple formerly, where God fills it, Solomon's temple, with all of his wonder and glory, and they sit back and they watch the fireworks, we're left hanging. It doesn't happen. God's with them, but we're almost left hanging for what's next. And some 400 years later, a man comes, a young boy who's born and grows in Nazareth of Galilee. And as he grows to be a man, he starts and begins to walk through 
announcing that God's reign and rule has arrived. Come. It says he's walking through the area of Samaria. That's right, that same place where those people, the Assyrians, had relocated and had perhaps come and said, let us rebuild with you. And Jesus had a conversation with a woman at the well and she says, what are you doing talking to me? I'm a woman. This is not culturally appropriate. And he says, well, could you get me some water? And she goes, get it yourself, not quite. And she says, why are you asking me that? And he says, well, if you knew the water that I could offer you, you would ask me and I would give you living water that will well up to eternal life. And she says, I don't ever want to come back here. I'm tired of the walk. Could you give me that living water? And he says, would you go and get your husband? And she says, I don't have a husband. He says, you are telling me the truth. You're right. You've had a number of husbands and the one you're with right now is not your husband. But I'm not saying that to shame you. I'm not saying that because I don't care about you. I'm totally the opposite. And then she says, oh, we worship God on this mountain, but you Jews worship him on that one. Jesus says, I'm not going to get caught up in that debate and trick. In fact, soon, right now, the Father is seeking people that would honor him and worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth of who I am and a new spirit, because when you open up your heart to me, I will pour forth my spirit into you. And there will be like a river of living water that will flow out from inside of you. And it will reach into eternal. You don't have to fear life because you don't have to fear death. And I'm with you always. Your life will not be perfect as a result of following me, but you will be renewed from the inside out and you will have a hope and a peace and a joy that when things are good or things are bad, you'll have a new song to praise me so you can rebuild the walls. But I want to change the heart. And it starts when human beings reflexively declare, God, you are who you are and your son is who he is. And would you put a new song in me? So I wonder this morning if we might finish off by doing just that. To invite us to stand together and maybe God's speaking to you. And it's one of two things or both. How is he inviting you to honor him in your life? And have you become really cynical over the last two years? That you need a new song put in your heart. That will soften you. So would you stand with me? Because I want to create a space now where you might respond to God. And perhaps what he's saying to you today. If you're joining us online where you are at home or later on today. And I wonder if you just might posture yourself in a way that's, if you like, open to God. And as you hear these two songs, you might respond. You might respond. So that he will put a new song in our hearts. Why don't we sing together?